Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side. This is Tom here. Welcome back to B-Side. And today we're going to be discussing The Mandalorian. And we have just completed the entire Mandalorian Season 1. And, and I want to today discuss the way the Western elements of this, this show works, especially in conjunction with my kind of ideas of how the West brings together Hobbes and Locke. And so we have that kind of tension between a Hobbesian worldview and a Lockean worldview. And I argue that what we see in The Mandalorian and what we see in, in Western genres more broadly, though not, not universally, is that the irreducibility of the difference between the philosophies of John Locke and Thomas Hobbes remain in a state of aporia, that is an open and unanswerable question, an unbridgeable gap. And what we see in the Western is a recognition of this unbridgeable gap. And I think The Mandalorian, especially the second half of the series, really does exemplify this. All right, so let's jump into it. I'll say the, the inspiration for this B-side was actually the seventh episode in which Werner Herzog, everyone's favorite client, listed out to the the Mandalorian and to Carl Weathers' character, whose name I don't remember, and if I forget character names, my apologies. Um, he lists out Werner Herzog's client does the various things the Empire did well. And he says the Empire offers, I don't there's five of them, I don't remember them all, they're offered like protection, security, trade, opportunity, things like that. And what we see on this planet, which is on, as I understand it, the kind of outer rim of the galaxy, is a planet that is really being ruled by chaos. Um, there's a bunch of bounty hunters, they seem to be in charge uh, the, there isn't a stable currency, so even if you actually do work, God knows what you're going to be paid in, and if what you're going to be paid in is is actually going to be spent. It seems like one of the more valuable currencies is actually still the Empire currency, um, even though the Mandalorian rejects that in the first episode. But what we see is a world that isn't, I would say, an example of of a well-governed planet or a well-governed society. It seems to be quite chaotic. We have a number of citizens, the, the, the Mandalores, the people from Mandalore, Mandalore, the Mandalorians rather, they're from Mandalore, who are sort of living underground, living in the shadows. Uh, it's a little unclear why, but they seem to not have gotten on their feet since the Empire fell. And at the beginning of the show, The Mandalorian, we know that five years have passed since the destruction of the second Death Star and the reestablishment of the Republic. And yet, despite this, we are 
introduced into a criminal network that only very infrequently touches on the order and governance of the Republic. And so what we see in this world is a world that is in a state of disorder. And it makes sense that Werner Herzog's client would bring his imperial leftovers to this place. This is a place where they can reconstitute themselves. It's a place where they can reorganize and do the type of work they want to do. We also see Moff Gideon, who is apparently a war criminal and was apparently believed to have been executed by uh, by the Republic for his, his crimes in war, his crimes against, I, I suppose, sentient beings. Um, but he's alive. He's doing well. He's commanding a very large troop of people. And so from the perspective of the average citizen on this planet, what we have is really a chaotic place where if you want justice, you have to hire a bounty hunter. Um, the empire who fell five years ago seems to be running a small business of some sort, complete with, with empire garb. There isn't really Republican authority around here. Nobody seems to care about this place. It's the Wild West, and this is why The Mandalorian borrows Western genre tropes, because it, it makes sense, right? This is the, the outskirts of what we could think of as a nation, really. The Republic is a single nation, has a single governing body. Um, each planet might have its own individual governing body, much in the same way our states have their own constitutions and state houses, etc. But it is one nation, and yet here in property that is within the governing structure of the Republic, we have a sort of hands-off approach, and it doesn't seem to be working very well. And so in episode seven of season one of The Mandalorian, when Werner Herzog says, what is this you have? This is chaos out there. There's crime. There's disorder. We brought order. What was so bad about the Empire? You know, he kind of has a point. Uh, now, granted, the there's a few poison pills that ruin this argument. One of them is that in Episode 4, A New Hope, the Empire blows up Alderaan. They just blow up a planet, killing uh, presumably millions of people. I don't think it's billions. I think it's only millions. And then secondly, in the episodes themselves, the Empire is trying to torture an adorable baby. So if you're the good guy, you're not on the side of people who are committing genocide and torturing babies. So yes, granted, the Empire, not good people. There's the, these poison pills that, that don't allow us to embrace them. However, that doesn't get past... Herzog's character's argument, which is, this is also not working. What you have left over, what has emerged in the last five years, is a lack of rule, is a lack of order. Now, it also may be the case that the Empire didn't provide this order as well. It seems to be what Chris and Nick were saying on the podcast, and, and fair enough, um, however, it seems like the Empire could impose rule. As soon as Moff Gideon comes down, he has that place on lock. He is running it. 
He is ordering it. Now, granted, it's for evil purposes, namely baby torture, but he does have the capacity to keep this place in line in a way that apparently the Republic either doesn't have or is not interested in doing. And so that's kind of the main problem that arises at the end of The Mandalorian, for me anyway. Now, I understand that at the end of Episode Eight, everything is supposed to be good. Now, Moff Gideon is still alive, so this is a problem, but everything is supposed to be good in this world. And that maybe, you could argue, is a refutation of the client's argument. However, I don't think it gets past the very interesting aporia that occurs when we look at the Western. And we look at the Western genre, either a Western in, in America, a Western that takes place in America, um, or a Western in the sense of uh, science fiction Western, such as this television show, or even Firefly slash Serenity, which also uses and really leans into those Western tropes, I think even more so than The Mandalorian. And as I said before, I think the main conflict that the, the area or the space of the West brings up is a conflict between Hobbes and Locke. And so let's get into that a little bit. Thomas Hobbes was a English philosopher who lived during the 17th century, much like John Locke. And Hobbes believed that when you got rid of governing structures, what ended up happening was people would kind of tear each other apart that it would be what he said was a war of all against all. And he published this in his very famous book, Leviathan, which was published in the uh, early 1650s, and then its second edition was, I believe, in the late 1660s. And Hobbes is publishing this at a time when, um, in recent memory, the king, Charles I, had been executed. He, He was executed in 1649, and you had a commonwealth come in, a republic in England, which had never existed before. So only a few years after the execution of a king, Hobbes is writing an argument saying, we need an authoritative central figure to keep everyone in line. And if you don't have that, if you don't have that at the center of the commonwealth, then what we dissolve into is tribal anarchy and bloodlust and avariciousness that will overtake this country. And so that becomes Hobbes' argument. Now, I'm being very brief in my discussion of Hobbes. Hobbes has a very interesting materialist aspect to his philosophy. He also draws from classical sources in a very interesting way. Hobbes is a very important and, and very engaging philosopher who has a body of work throughout his life. However, what's what he's known for, what he remains... Um, what he remains pictured as in the, the kind of political philosophy imagination is the idea of justifying an authoritative state and that the, the authority of that state keeps everything together, keeps everything in order. Now, 
younger philosopher, but also writing in the 18th century. This is John Locke. And John Locke's most famous work is Two Treatises on Government, especially the, the second treatise on government is the one everybody reads. Nobody reads the first one. They should. It's, it's interesting. But the second treatise on government, in there, Locke establishes quite a number of things, but one of them are two ways to acquire property. And stay with me. I know this sounds, sounds roundabout, but uh, when we talk about the two ways to legitimately acquire property, we could see how Locke thinks differently about authority, right? And so the two ways in which you can acquire property are through contract. You, you buy it, somebody gives it to you, you inherit it, whatever. You have an agreement between people, this is a contract, or something called homesteading. And I'm, what I mean by homesteading is what the word means, but I'll explain it. Homesteading is when you go to an, an area of land that is yet unoccupied and you basically take it over and start using it, start in, in the case of uh, the, the 18th century and the 17th century, start farming on it and start producing things from it. And so the idea is once you go into unoccupied land, and you make it talk, you make it work for you, you make something from it, you now have a legitimate right to that property. And even in America, there are kind of, I wouldn't call them homesteading, but laws which involve the use of land. If you are using property over time, even if you haven't acquired that by contract, very often the law can indicate that you are the rightful owner of that property. Right, so this idea of homesteading, this locking idea, really resonates even to today. And so how do we get to somebody legitimately having the authority over property based upon just contractor homesteading? Well, authority for Locke, and Locke is working within the natural rights tradition, um, authority comes from your humanity. And either that is endowed to you or given to you by, by God. If you're an atheist, it's given to you by your humanity. It really doesn't matter. What matters is that authority and power comes from the individual. And the individual, by having sovereignty, has a right over property, just as long as he or she doesn't acquire it illegally, doesn't, doesn't steal it or whatever, and... If they did, that would be a violation of someone else's natural rights. Um, but these natural rights come from your humanity, and that justifies a private property society, a society that is made up of people with property claims. Now, what's interesting about the Wild West is the Wild West, the so-called Wild West, I should say, is an example of property rights that emerge through homesteading, also through contract, but we see just a tremendous amount of homesteading. We saw this, too, in the gold rush when we watched the, the, the gold rush with the little tramp. Um, they go off to the mountain in Alaska and in the Yukon, and people are just kind of putting up their, their little sign and saying, this is my property. They are effectively homesteading, and apparently... The, the 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 little tramp 
story, the gold rush takes place, I believe, in the 1890s. The the Yukon, Alaska gold rush was a little later. But if you look at the gold rush of the 1840s, 1850s in, in San Francisco, this property rights system, this homesteading system, there was a few emergent laws that came out of a bunch of people coming there. And however, it seemed to work very, very well. The homesteading way of doing things functioned extremely well in California in the the middle of the 19th century. And a lot of Westerns then are about, I would say, the tension between the lack of an authoritative figure. So we're in the Wild West. The governing structures have not reached there yet, right? They're, They're waiting for the railroad to be built. They haven't gotten there yet. So there's a tension between the lack of an authoritative governing figure and the reason why people have gone out to the West, really, which is to homestead property and develop the land. And homesteading isn't just gold rush. It could also be, you know, more often than not, farms. Um, we could see in the, the Leone film, Once Upon a Time in the West, the characters who are killed at the beginning are looking to... Um, homestead an area and develop a train station and a town because the that character had realized in advance that the railroad was coming through. And so he was interested in kind of homesteading this property and developing it and making it fruitful, not just for farming, but as a site of civilization where a train could stop and, and people could buy goods and whatnot and get off the train, etc. Um, and so what we see then is in that film, and that film is a very good example for people who know it, is that there is really nobody or not very many people, they're not very powerful, who are responsible for law and order. And that's why Henry Fonda's character in, in that picture, Henry Fonda's character Frank, is able to sort of act as a mercenary and do what he wants and spend decades really engaging in extremely violent behavior for profit. Uh, it's because there isn't there isn't power, there isn't the power of the East, the power of civilization to keep people in order. And consequently, it becomes war of all against all and the person who draws the fastest rules. And it doesn't matter about this stuff about natural rights because you drew slower, right? And so that's the tension there. However, the reason why people go out to the West is to develop and cultivate property, really to bring the land into civilization. And I think that tension is also in the heart of the Mandalorian, that tension between the the civilizing instincts, the need for property, um, and the fact that we have a system which is ruled by kind of violent bounty hunters. And East, which is the Republic, which in, in this geography seems to be the center, the center of the galaxy, uh, they don't really seem to have the resources to be able to offer authority, to be, a- be able to offer that Hobbesian thing. Now, if you're a good Lockean, and I I would consider myself a good Lockean, you would say order emerges. And actually, there's a a book called The Not-So-Very-Wild West. And in that book, I don't remember the name of the author, but 
in that book, what we, we discover is, uh, or, or this author discovers, is that the so-called Wild West actually wasn't that wild. These property rights systems, these kind of emergent property rights systems worked pretty well. There actually wasn't that much violence even. Um, there's a few shootouts, but this was incredibly infrequent. And so this kind of Lockean idea of emergent uh, emergent order coming from protected and understood property rights, not necessarily needing a very strong hand to guide it, that seems to be closer to reality. However, that's really not what's going on, I think, in The Mandalorian. What we see is when property rights are a little iffy, so to speak, um, chaos emerges. That it really is in The Mandalorian. There are many cases of it being a war of all against all. In many cases, it's a war of all against The Mandalorian. Uh, but that has that is what's happening. However, people are out there, the bounty hunters are out there because they want to acquire property, right? They want to cultivate their skills. They want to develop their skills. They want to acquire property by doing their profession, bounty hunting. And so there is this tension, I think, in, in Westerns and in The Mandalorian between the need for authority and that kind of rugged individualism, so to speak, that emerges when someone goes off into the West to make their fortune, right? And we see the bounty hunter. The bounty hunter is definitely a, uh, the, the Mandalorian is definitely a, a rugged individual. He is powerful, he's strong, and he's developed it through years of conflict, through going off and making a name for himself. And this is something that is, is part of the American ethos, this idea of the rugged individual. And however, the rugged individual sits at the center of this conflict between the order that civilization brings, that the East brings, if we think in terms of American coasts, that the East brings, and the, this sort of Hobbesian war of all against all, that the open and unconquered West provides. Might even not even say provides. And maybe it's the the lack of order in the open and unconquered West. And out of that aporia, that that unclosed conflict, that unbridgeable gap, comes this this rugged individual who both wants to cultivate property and wants to make a name for himself or herself, while at the same time being able to survive within the war of all against all. Now, of course, if it's really a, a kind of rugged individualism, then eventually there is, um, there is emergent order, there is agreement, there is a, a means by which these people can kind of work together and eventually social hierarchy that comes, social, excuse me, social, social hierarchy, yes, but also social harmony that comes out of the ground. Um, but what the Western does is the Western doesn't give us that, that comfortable resolution. It always reminds us that on the margins are, is the Hobbesian nightmare. All right. And so those are my quick reflections on The Mandalorian. Uh, thank you very much for listening. This has been Tom with B-Side.